Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, we will be discussing the National Institutes of Health Coronavirus Disease 2019 Treatment Guidelines with Craig M. Coopersmith, MD, MCCM, past president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Amy L. Zerba, PharmD, FCCM, and Greg S. Martin, MD, MS, FCCM, president-elect of the Society. These guests were invited by Dr. Anthony Fauci to serve on the NIH COVID-19 Treatment Guidelines panel. To access the full guidelines, visit covid19treatmentguidelines.nih.gov. Welcome to all of you. Do you have any disclosures to the report before we start? Hi, Margaret. This is Greg. And I would say that I chair the Data Safety Monitoring Board for a clinical trial known as the Miracle Trial that's testing the combination of lapanavir, ritonavir, and interferon beta in a similar population. That's patients with the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Hi, Margaret. This is Amy. I was a panel member of the SSC COVID-19 guidelines. Hi, Margaret. This is Craig. I have no disclosures. Thank you to all of you, and, and once again, welcome. Um, Craig, would you start off by telling us a bit about how these guidelines were developed? So, um, as you mentioned, Anthony Fauci uh, invited all of us, and I'll start out by saying it's cool to wake up one morning and get an email from Anthony Fauci. Um, And the idea behind them was there's really no treatment guidelines specifically for the management of the continuum of COVID-19. I understand, of course, that there's the SSC guidelines for critical care, uh, but for the continuum, uh, there really weren't. And so there were invitations made to 29 different individuals um, on the entire continuum, moving from asymptomatic and mild disease to moderate disease to severe disease to critical illness, also looking at post-modifying agents as well as direct acting agents and additional considerations. And there are representatives of multiple different societies um, and multiple branches of the federal government, including the NIH and the DOD and the VA and the FDA and the CDC and BARDA. And every one of us was put onto one of four teams with a team leader, a leadership representative, a coordinator, clinical practice members, a clinical pharmacist, a biostatistician, and an ex-official member from the federal government. And each of us working with our expertise Um, had a number of different questions that were uh, put to us at the beginning that we should um, look at and that we're continuing to look at on a continuing basis. And how long did it take you to do all of this? Um, So from the time that we met from the first time to the time that the guidelines were out was uh, a little bit less than four weeks. So like everything else with COVID, things that take years can take months. Things that can take months to years can take a couple of weeks. And that's exactly what happened here. So each one of our subgroups had uh, at least two calls a week. And then our big group had at least two calls a week. And then we were, I think, meeting on Sunday nights at like seven o'clock because many of us had clinical duties and that was the only time that we were free. And it went relatively light speed with going over massive amounts of literature and preliminary recommendations in the subgroups and then discussing this in the, in the larger group. Um, and it went literally nothing to online available to the entire public in four weeks. And because it's a living document, uh, hoping to update it every week or two 
In fact, once I get off this, um, this call, my next call is uh, my subgroup meeting. This has been a truly impressive effort. Greg, would you talk about the major recommendations with regards to critical care? Absolutely. So a lot of the recommendations that come out in the NIH management guidelines, particularly those relative to critical care, are based on the foundation of what we know from many other related conditions. And that's because even though we do know quite a lot about COVID-19, there's still quite a lot that we don't yet know. And so the evidence for COVID-19 is still limited. And the basic principles that we use for managing a patient with COVID-19 actually are very similar to what we would do from all the things that we've learned in, in other conditions, like acute respiratory failure and ARDS and patients with hemodynamic instability. Those same principles apply in the general population as they do now for COVID-19. So for instance, in patients with COVID-19-associated ARDS, the guidelines recommend using lung protective ventilation with appropriate PEEP titration, a conservative fluid strategy, and suggest proning pharmacologic paralysis, the use of inhaled vasodilators, and ECMO in specific clinical situations. And all of those are similar approaches that would be exercised in the setting of ARDS that's not associated with COVID-19. And then the other thing that comes up is the therapy section within the guidelines, and that focuses on other therapies for COVID-19, and that spans the spectrum, as Craig was saying. So it, it goes everything from the asymptomatic through the severely ill and critically ill patients, and it touches on things like antiviral therapies and immune modulating therapies, and then other things that are being commonly considered, such as corticosteroids. Greg, how do these guidelines differ from the surviving sepsis COVID-19 guidelines? So there are some significant differences between the surviving sepsis campaign COVID-19 guidelines and the NIH treatment and management guidelines. The first that people will see is there's a, a big difference in the way recommendations are created. So for instance, in the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, the grade approach was used to assess the quality of evidence meaning that questions were structured in the PICO format, the population intervention comparator and outcomes. And then the recommendations were developed by a panel discussion and consensus. And because there's a, a considerably larger base of evidence for patients with sepsis and ARDS, the surviving sepsis campaign extrapolated that to the COVID guidelines and used the same format, that same grade approach that they've used in prior guidelines. In contrast to NIH guidelines, when you look at those, you'll notice that all the recommendations there are based on a combination of scientific evidence and expert opinion. And so each recommendation is assigned each of those two ratings. So the first is a strength of the recommendation, meaning it's either a strong recommendation or a moderate recommendation or an optional recommendation. And the second is the quality of evidence that underlies the recommendation. So for instance, um, evidence from randomized controlled trials would be the highest level of evidence. And then things like observational data or uh, retrospective data would be sort of a moderate second level of evidence. And then finally, the third is evidence that may be lacking, but is based essentially on expert opinion. So when you look at the NIH guidelines, you'll see those two ratings in A, B, or C, that's the strength of the recommendation, and a Roman numeral one, two, or three that indicates the quality of the evidence. The other two things that differentiate or really stand out as different, one is the composition of the panel. So the NIH panel had members of the treatment guidelines appointed by those panel co-chairs. So the NIH co-chairs for the panel are Tripp Gulick, Cliff Lane, and Henry Masur. 
and each of the other panel members were chosen based on their clinical experience and their expertise in patient management, their translational and clinical science, and or their expertise in development of treatment guidelines. So in this case, the panel members include representatives, as Craig mentioned, from various professions and disciplines coming from federal agencies, from healthcare, from academic organizations, and from professional societies. The SSC is slightly different in the sense that it's a very multi-professional group that spans particularly across continents, and it consists of physicians and pharmacists and nurses that are experts in guideline development, infection control, infectious diseases, microbiology, critical care, emergency medicine, and public health. The third thing that, that I would say is a bit different between the NIH and the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines is that, as Craig mentioned, the NIH guidelines really span a very large spectrum of disease. So they're intended to help provide guidance on how to manage patients with COVID-19 in different stages of the infection, everything from outpatients to inpatients with mild, moderate, severe, and even critical illness, as well as information about diagnostic testing, infection control, and then specific considerations for pediatrics and for pregnant patients. And as, as we realize, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guideline focuses on a very multi-professional group, but it focuses very specifically on the critically ill patients with COVID-19 and all the supportive care strategies that go with that. Amy, would you talk a bit about what therapeutic options are under investigation? Uh, as one looks at the NIH guidelines, um, most of the therapies say there is insufficient. there are insufficient data to make a recommendation one way or the other. What's currently being looked at and what's the status of these options? Sure. Uh, when COVID-19 first emerged, a lot of the therapeutic options or the evidence behind it was really informed by previous coronaviruses or other pandemics such as MERS or SARS. Um, so in the NIH guidelines, there was particular consideration given to therapies that have been or were being tested in patients with COVID-19, um, although the, a lot of that literature is still emerging, there was some subset looking specifically in these patients. And again, to echo with what Dr. Coopersmith said was that each group was really tasked with critically reviewing and incorporating the most up-to-date information. And most of the therapeutic interventions fell into three categories. They were either your antiviral therapies, such as remdesivir and hydroxychloroquine. We also looked at the immune modulating therapies, such as interleukin-6 antagonists and interferons, and then other therapies, such as corticosteroids. In the guidelines, additionally, there was also consideration taken particularly to medications that patients may have been hospitalized on or been taking at home, but now in the hospital with COVID-19, such as ACE inhibitors, if they were ready on non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents, inhaled corticosteroids, or statins. Craig, would you talk about, you, you made reference to uh, updating these guidelines weekly. Um, how's that going to happen? And I mean, clearly there are new data coming in, uh, data on antiviral agents. There's a lot of emerging um, information about patients having strokes and coagulopathies and so forth. What's the plan for dealing with all of this? Uh, so the goal is to make it a living document such that if you looked at it on April 20th and you look at it at May 20th, a lot of the recommendations will hopefully be different 
because everything's moving at the speed of light. And each week we get new trials. And so each subgroup uh, is working with librarians who are getting us new studies that are coming out each day. And it's actually interesting how uh, studies are coming to us. So they're coming to us through the literature, but they're also coming to us places like MedRxiv, where, uh, where people are placing their preprints before papers undergo peer review. And then we're getting press releases. Uh, and then we're getting Twitter leaks. Um, and going through all of this data, some published, some not through peer review yet, but uh, still with all the data is an interesting paradigm that I certainly have never lived on before, under before. I'm not sure about Greg and Amy in trying to decide how good the literature is and when we change a recommendation. And so each of the subgroups is meeting um, each week. And then the larger group is meeting each week with recommendations from the subset about we will change a recommendation based upon X, Y, or Z new data, or we will not change the recommendation, but we will incorporate new data. So for instance, if there is a phase two trial that comes out with 30 or 40 patients, whether it's positive or negative, a phase two trial is unlikely for us to say there's sufficient data to say one should use this drug. However, if there's a phase two trial that says this is potentially beneficial or a phase two trial that says this has potential harm, that would certainly make it into the text. And so each subgroup each week is going over the data and I can guarantee that we're getting loads of emails each day, either in box or to our emails about new trials that are coming out. And then we are putting this together as a group to say, these are the recommendations in the subgroups. Then we go to the larger group. And some of the things, as you might imagine, are more challenging to get through. Hydroxychloroquine would be somewhat more challenging to go through or remdesivir when Anthony Fauci states what the results are of a trial but we don't actually have the trial to see yet. And we're trying to figure out how we handle that in terms of a recommendation. And then the, the big group votes, and then ultimately it'll get uh, changed on the website, again, as a living, breathing document. This is really unprecedented. And I've never seen anything like this before. I, and as you said, you said you haven't either. I just, I, it's amazing to me um, how quickly uh you can move. This is, I mean, it's just such a huge amount of work for all the people who were um, on the panel. I, it's, I'm, I am truly impressed. Well, the nice thing is that none of us have anything else to do right now. So we can <laughs> the time to this. I'm actually joking because uh, pretty much everybody on this is on clinical service. And so people are calling in from New York City saying, I have 500 people in my hospital who are COVID positive, And I have 30 minutes free right now. I'm not going to eat lunch, but I'm going to do this. Or we're meeting on Sunday nights. Uh, so I, I was joking, actually, everybody's very much on the front lines. I would just add that it's really been remarkable, as you said, Margaret, because the number of people and, and everyone working together, realizing that this is both important, but also very time sensitive, that we needed to get this information out and to be able to assess the quality of evidence and figure out how it applies to this broad spectrum of patients was really the mission. And everyone obviously dedicated a lot of time to try and make that happen. And it's, there are some people who I'm sure um, were exceptionally busy during this time and they still made time to do it. And you don't know how long this is going to go on. We don't. I mean, none of us obviously know when the current 
what I call the COVID era is going to wane or end. But everyone, as we're talking about, is expecting it to persist for some period of time and probably even come back in some fashion in the fall or winter of this year. And so a lot of the things we're considering take that into account. But we don't really know whether this is something that's going to taper off and be quiescent over the summer, for instance, or is this something we're going to be dealing with for quite a while still? And the hope is, as we move on, that we move from many recommendations that say there are insufficient evidence to recommend for or against this therapy to clear recommendations. We should be using this or we should not be using this based upon high quality randomized trials. That's an important part, too, because we realize that these are guidelines and specifically their treatment and management guidelines. And we recognize that there's a lack of evidence in a lot of areas. And we certainly want to recognize the importance of clinical trials and clinical studies for informing how to care for patients. But at the same time, we need to balance that with the recommendations that people need or providing guidance to practitioners at the front line who can take this up-to-date full-spectrum guideline and use it for patients at the bedside and, and be able to rely on those as useful guidelines or useful evidence. So let's just kind of recap a little bit. Greg, would you kind of summarize where we are currently with the approach to critically ill patients with COVID-19 and, you know, in the light of the speed with which these things are are, uh, moving, where do you think we'll be in a week? It is a very good question, Margaret, and, and we all wish that we knew where we will be and what things will look like in a week or a month or even a year. Um. The things that we've learned about COVID-19 is certainly quite a lot, um, but there's still a lot that we don't know. And fortunately, and especially for critically ill patients with COVID-19, we know a lot about the underlying conditions, the things that, that basically are the phenotypes that appear when someone becomes severely or critically ill with COVID-19. So for instance, we know a lot about acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. We know a lot about ARDS, shock acute kidney injury, coagulopathy, altered mental status, and encephalopathy. And those kinds of things actually serve us in good stead for providing the basic foundation for the way we care for patients. So the current treatment of COVID-19 patients is based on really all that we've learned about taking care of critically ill patients, meaning that we use the proven evidence-based strategies as the foundation for all of our care. And then we individualize it so that we're delivering the right care at the right time, or the idea that it's right care right now. And then finally, the the NIH treatment guidelines, as we've mentioned, are intended to be a continuously evolving living document. And so we expect the recommendations to change as new evidence emerges. And we also expect that to help providers around the world stay up to date, so that as these new treatments emerge, and as we can make even stronger or more clear recommendations about what works well and what doesn't work well, we'll be able to provide that current information on how to manage the full spectrum of patients with COVID-19. On a slightly different track, it sounds like a very high percentage, nearly 90% of the people who get mechanically ventilated do not survive. Um, Are you looking at how do we manage those patients? Is this different from ARDS? Should we be doing something different? Where are we with that? I'm going to respectfully uh, push back at that fairly significantly. Um, So there's uh, two studies that have come out recently uh, in JAMA, uh, one from uh, 
Kaiser Permanente in Northern California showing a 50% mortality of patients on ventilators. And while the original paper from uh, Northwell in New York showed an 88% mortality, uh, there were some math errors in that table and the revised one, which perhaps didn't get as much press, uh, showed a 25% mortality, albeit with still about 60% of patients on the ventilator. So probably in the vicinity of 40 or 50%. Um, Greg and I are co-authors uh, on a paper that will be coming out uh, shortly from Emory. The preprint is available right now on MedRx IV. It's under peer review. Uh, but looking at our first 217 uh, ventilated patients, in our 165 ventilator patients, our mortality was slightly under 30%. And almost every one of the patients had a disposition. So it wasn't like we were waiting to see what happened with 60 or 70%. We knew what happened with 85% of them. And so the truth is our internal experience, again, that Greg and I are having, uh, shows a less than 30% uh, mortality for ventilated patients, which is consistent with some other um, recent data. And, and I think it's important to get this out there because it's not a death sentence to be in a ventilator in COVID-19. And there are a lot of reasons for these differences, but uh, this has gone to the point that people are saying, oh my God, ventilators are harmful. We shouldn't put patients on ventilators. And assuredly, ventilators are life-saving and ventilators are life-saving in, uh, in COVID-19. So I think it's audience to know that. I think that's an excellent point, And I really appreciate the update on, again, emerging data. Um, that's a lot more reassuring than what you hear in the news and in other reports. Um, do, do any of you have any final comments you want to make? Greg? So I would just add one comment about the ability to care for these patients, because they're, they're very clearly, at least the critically ill patients, are very complex, and they present often a full spectrum of organ dysfunction and clinical complications that require very attentive therapy. But as Craig said, with, um, as Craig said, with high-quality critical care and a health system that is still functioning well and has had things planned so that the health system and or the community is not under severe distress because of being overwhelmed with cases, the way we deliver care for patients with COVID-19 actually results in very reasonable and actually very typical outcomes, as you would expect for patients with ARDS and multiple organ dysfunction. So not to say that they're not severely ill and not to say that, that they all are going to survive, but the things that we rely upon as the foundation of evidence can be applied to these patients and the outcomes for them can be quite good. Um, the thing to keep in mind is that there's a variety of other factors that we're really still trying to understand. And almost certainly one of those factors is how overwhelmed the health system is with the patients and how they're able to actually deliver the care that they want to deliver. Amy, would you like to make any final comments? No, I echo what's been said already. And I, you know, a lot of institutions have had protocols in place on how to deal with hemodynamically unstable patients, how to deal with patients with ARDS, including uh, lung protective ventilation, uh, minimizing sedation, sedation awakenings, coupled with spontaneous breathing trials. And as Dr. Martins alluded to, these are really the tenants that, you know, form the foundation of taking care of these patients and to follow them. And 
I think when we deviate and we see something in one patient, maybe in a second, but then not in a third and a fourth, it's important to say, well, those, those two observations I saw don't apply to everybody. Um, and I think people sometimes are quick to do something based on observations. But again, to go back to the basics, look at your protocols you have. Some may need to be tweaked, but again, applying the basic principles that we have are, are allowing for these patients to survive. Thank you. And Craig, any final comments? Uh, I, I just want to emphasize that the, um, the guidelines are a living, breathing document. And as we're learning more in the intensive care unit, this is getting fed back and we're increasing the composition of the panel. So for instance, um, many of us, probably all of us are seeing a significant increase in thrombosis in the ICU. And this is manifesting, manifesting in multiple different ways in PEs, in clotting off CRRT, in limb loss, um, in microthrombi found on, on autopsies, in, in a way, honestly, that's different from what we're used to seeing in the ICU. And everybody's seeing the same thing, and this got fed back to the guidelines. And, and what, what's going to happen is we're now going to have thrombosis experts uh, joining us. So as the guidelines get updated, we will be responsive to what people are seeing at the bedside as more studies come out um, in order to give the best guidance possible uh, for our clinician colleagues at the bedside. Well, thank you to all of you for um, speaking with us today. This really um, reflects a huge commitment on your part and um, a, a great ongoing effort, um, which I sincerely appreciate. Um, and thank you all for being here. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York. She is a former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. She is currently serving as Associate Editor of Critical Care Medicine and Senior Associate Editor of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org membership. For more information, the iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants, and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.